Well, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the second to last book in the Bible, the book of Jude, the epistle of Jude, which consists of just one chapter, 25 verses. With God's help, we're going to read and consider the entire epistle. We're not 100% sure the identity of Jude, although I think it's likely that this is Judas, not Iscariot, who was the brother of James, who was the brother or cousin of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, seems to be that he was one of the apostles. But in any event, this is the very Word of God. Let's hear now the Word of God beginning in verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality, and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them! For they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness, Forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His saints 
to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. May the Lord bless His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help this morning, let's turn back to Jude, focusing our attention upon several verses here. We can see, just let me read a couple of these verses to give us a a bit of a summary of this epistle before we dive in. Verse 3, Jude addresses his readers, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So you can see here that Jude is addressing this group of Christians. This is probably one of the earlier epistles that was written uh, I do believe it was written by the Apostle Jude, Judas, not Iscariot, who very likely was a brother of James, the son of Alphaeus. Uh, others have differing theories on who he is. He certainly is humble in referring to the others as the Apostles, but, but I do think this is Jude the Apostle. In any event, he addresses his audience, this perhaps scattered group of early Christians, perhaps largely a Jewish Christian community, Uh, He addresses them saying that his intention and his desire had been simply to expound the doctrines of salvation. To speak to them concerning the unity that they have in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That common salvation, perhaps he would have discussed the new birth, justification by faith alone, adoption, sanctification. Perhaps he would have described part of uh, the doctrine of eternal life in heaven. In any event, he's not able to do that in good conscience. He finds it necessary to write to this 
early group of Christians exhorting them to deal with a very dangerous situation that had arisen within the church or churches. He says they need to contend earnestly for the faith. Now the fact that he finds it necessary to exhort them to contend earnestly for the faith perhaps suggests that they weren't contending earnestly for the faith. They were unaware. And so he blows the trumpet. He blasts the trumpet and warns them and calls them to action. There's a situation here you need to take, light, take note of and take seriously. Contending earnestly for the faith. He speaks of those who have crept in unnoticed into the church. He describes them. Verse 12, these are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. Then verse 16, these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts. And then verse 19, these are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. And throughout this epistle, he contrasts these He says these, and he describes these ungodly persons with their ungodly deeds committed in an ungodly way. He just compounds this reference to these ungodly people. But he contrasts them with the beloved, with the saints of God, and their most holy faith. Verse 20, but you, beloved. And he says that multiple times. But you, beloved. Now, what are we to make of this epistle? What is this epistle saying and what is it saying to us? This is an epistle that often is ignored. Um, it's, a, it's a tiny epistle. As we mentioned earlier, it's just one chapter. And so, if you looked at the bulletin and you said, we're going to read Jude 1-25, through you thought, we're going to read 25 chapters. No, actually, it's just 25 verses. There's no chapter to make reference to. There are no chapter divisions here. Now, perhaps in some sense, pastors have been inclined to preach from this epistle because it's so short. But the fact is, it doesn't really gain a lot of attention in the Christian church, and yet it should. It's a very important epistle. It's a very important part of the Word of God. It's not just something you skip over to get to the real action in the book of Revelation. We need to hear the message that Jude has for the beloved church of Jesus Christ in His own day and in every age. Well, we see here, first of all, that Jude reminds his readers that the Christian faith is a most holy faith. The Christian faith, the doctrines of the Gospel, the teachings of the Word of God, what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man, this is a most holy faith. Verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Verse 3, he says that this most holy faith was once delivered to the saints, to the holy ones. It's a most holy faith that has been imparted to those whom God is making holy and whom God has gathered together in His most holy church. And so, an attack on holiness is an attack on orthodoxy or true biblical doctrine. An attack on holiness is an attack on orthodoxy. It's an attack on doctrinal fidelity to the Word of God. 
an attack on holiness which Jude is spelling out for this in epistle that's taking place among these early Christian churches. That attack on holiness is an attack on the foundational truth of the Bible. He speaks of those who have crept into the church as ungodly. Verse 4, for certain men have crept in unnoticed while long ago, or who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. In other words, God's sovereign over what's happening. So, in one sense, we should be flustered and called to action. This is an emergency, but in another sense, God has ordained all of these things. So, duty is ours, the consequences are the Lord's. We shouldn't be deathly afraid of what's happening. There's a healthy fear here, but. Those who fall away, those who creep in and wreak havoc in the life of the church, it is according to the sovereign plan of God. It's, an, it's really an opportunity for us to be stirred to action and to glorify God in our response. But in any event, he says that these certain men have crept in unnoticed, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness. Now, I'm going to say something about this later on, but just at face value, what are they doing? They're latching on to the freeness and the graciousness of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the promise of the forgiveness of sins through the death and resurrection of Christ. They're latching on to the grace of God, which is a beautiful thing. I hope we're all latching on to the grace of God here this morning and tonight as well. But they're latching onto it and they are corrupting it. They're misunderstanding it and misrepresenting it in such a way that rather than there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared, as we sang from Psalm 130, what they're representing here is that let us sin that grace may abound. There is forgiveness so that we can go on living our lewd and ungodly lifestyle. There's forgiveness so that we don't have to be concerned with God's law, human law, human authority, divine authority. We can just go on denying the Lordship of God in Christ and denying God-ordained human authorities. That's this corruption of the Gospel that is taking place. And, And we'll flesh that out. But you can see what's happening. They're misunderstanding the relationship between the Gospel and the law. And I've said it in that order very specifically because sometimes we speak of the law and the gospel. And rightly so. The law points out our sin. It's not a ladder so that we can climb to heaven by our own good works. The law points out our sin so that we see our need for the Savior absolutely. But we can't only speak of the law and the gospel. We need to also speak of the gospel and the law. Because the new covenant at its very essence, means that God saves us, He remembers our iniquities no more, and then He writes that law upon our hearts. So that as an act of gratitude, and by the power of the sanctifying Spirit of grace, we walk in holiness. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're more afraid to sin than we were before our conversion, before our justification, before we were forgiven. We're more afraid because now we actually fear offending God more than we fear hell. We fear sin more than we fear misery because we love God. We've been transformed. 
And the doctrines of the Gospel all point to to obedience and holiness. In fact, faith works itself out by love. And love is the fulfillment of the law. The first four commandments in the Ten Commandments deal with our love for God. So faith works itself out in obedience to those commandments and loving God. And the last six deal with our love for our neighbor. Even our love for our enemies. Our love for other people. And guess what? Faith works itself out in love in keeping the commandments of God. It's a most holy faith. And when it's anything else, it's not the faith once delivered at all. If if it's not the faith that is received by the saints as a most holy faith, then it is a corrupt and false faith. A dead faith. A heretical faith. You can look in the book of Titus. I don't want to linger too long on this. But uh, Paul's epistle to Titus, another tiny book that doesn't get a lot of press, but should be guiding us and influencing us. Titus 1 verse 1, Paul speaks of the truth which accords with godliness. Not the grace and the truth that leads to lewdness and all of these things. The truth that accords with Godliness. Chapter 2, verse 1, but as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. And then he outlines a godly Christian life in the family, in our relationships, in the workplace. These are the things that flow from sound doctrine. The most holy faith once delivered to the saints. And then Titus 2, verse 11. Listen to this. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And what does the grace of God that brings salvation teach us? Not just theologically, not just from the pulpit or the podium, but what does the experience of the grace of God teach us? What does the grace of God itself teach and instruct us in as Christians? It teaches this, that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. So, if you're a Christian, the grace of God daily as your sins are forgiven, as God showers His love on you, as He works all things together for good in your life, and as you hear His Word preached and you receive the means of grace, it's all teaching you and instructing you and reminding you to flee sin and to be zealous for good works. To reject ungodliness. You can see the fatal error of those who crept into these early Christian churches who were ungodly. And that word ungodly means irreverent. One who doesn't fear God. And we'll see something of that as we move along. Secondly, it is the case apparently that, as I mentioned, numerous ungodly persons had crept into the communicant membership of the church. We see that in verse 4. Numerous ungodly persons had apparently crept into the communicant membership of the church. Certain men have crept in unnoticed. And if you look at verse 12, it's clear these people were not just in the life of the church, hearing the preaching of the Gospel, 
in the pews as it were, but they were seated at the table of the Lord. He says these are spots. Some translations say hidden reefs, and we'll look at that in a second. But just for now, spots, blemishes in your love feasts. Now some people think that the love feast was a congregational fellowship meal that took place in connection with the Lord's Supper. Uh, I think we have to have serious questions about interpreting the Bible according to extra-biblical sources. Because the fact is, when you look at the Scriptures, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that if you come to church on the day they're celebrating the Lord's Supper and you're hungry, you should have eaten at home. You You should eat at home. In other words, in Corinth, the mistake they were making was trying to turn the Lord's Supper into a fellowship meal. It's not that fellowship meals are wrong, but the point is, the Lord's Supper is not a fellowship meal. And Paul seems to say, if if you're hungry, eat at home. The Lord's Supper is a spiritual fellowship meal, if you will. So so we're not uh, just feasting and so on. So what's happening here, this love feast, at face value, just the, the most obvious meaning here, is that this is the Lord's Supper. It's a feast of love. And these individuals are corrupting it. Not to say that you should hold back from the Lord's Supper if you see someone that you think is living in sin. You you still have a duty to come to the feast. He doesn't say you should hold back. Um, We're all sinners and so on. But, But the point is, they're a blemish. They've crept into the church. They're a spot and a blemish at the feast of love. They are feasting with you without fear. That is irreverently and unworthily serving only themselves. Literally, the word serving there is shepherding. Shepherding. Now, some translations say feeding, and certainly if it's a context in which we're thinking of sheep and shepherds, you might translate it feeding. You know, the good shepherd feeds his sheep or something. But where there's no reference to sheep in the context, it seems most obvious that it should be translated shepherding or pastoring. They're pastoring themselves. They're shepherding themselves. They have, as it says elsewhere, rejected authority. So you have these individuals that have crept into not just the life of the church, there's a much greater leeway in terms of people in the life of the church in the pews, but they've actually infiltrated the Lord's table itself. And yet, all of these things we see are true of them. They're doing it irreverently and unworthily. Now, if you look carefully at the epistle of Jude, it may remind you of the second chapter of Peter's second epistle. Second Peter chapter 2 is very similar to this sole chapter of the epistle of Jude. They're parallel. It's unmistakable that second Peter, which was probably written afterward, is taking what Jude wrote and applying it to his own situation. So Jude here is appealing to various apostles who spoke before him. He now speaks as an apostle. And then toward the end of his life, Peter in 2 Peter 2 takes what Jude the apostle has written and then he applies it as an apostle to his own situation. You see how the apostles relied upon the apostolic inspired Scriptures. They relied upon Scripture in their ministry. Though they were inspired, they used Scripture wherever they could 2 Peter 2 is taking this familiar material and applying it 
to Peter's situation. Now, Peter's situation clearly involved false teachers in the life of the church. I mean, from beginning to end in 2 Peter 2, Peter is taking the material of Jude and he's explicitly using it to refute and condemn false teachers among the people to whom he's writing. But if you look at Jude carefully, there's no indication, there's no clear indication. There's no smoking gun evidence that for sure there are false teachers among these ungodly persons. Perhaps some of them became elders or false teachers. We don't know. Jude appears to address them simply as men who had crept in unnoticed into the communicant membership of the church. And in verses 22 and 23, he seems to give shepherding advice to the church leadership that in some cases, you should have compassion or pity on people that uh, are not spreading their errors. They're, they're, They're not, if you think of a tumor, they're not malignant. They're not metastasizing, but... Uh, They're benign. They're just confused. Some translations make a reference to them as as doubting. But there are some people that simply need a a gentle rebuke or a gentle correction, have pity on them, making a distinction. But others who are metastasizing, others who are spreading, who are malignant, uh, the, the goal is still to save them but you've got to be more violent. You've you got to grab them and pull them, pluck them out of the fire. You need to run, and if they're in the way of a Mack truck, you need to tackle them to the other side of the road to protect them. So the goal is salvation and well-being for both kinds of false converts uh, or both kinds of unruly, disorderly church members. But uh, one is more serious than the other. Hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. In other words, that ceremonial uncleanness in the Old Testament that was contagious, you have to be very careful because it's contagious. And it needs to be quarantined and dealt with with the utmost care. But it seems, as I mentioned, that these are church members. Whereas Peter's taking the same exhortation in dealing with false teachers and church leaders that had become corrupt. Now, what does it mean that they crept in unnoticed or unawares? They crept in. Well, this is what Jesus is talking about in the parable of the wheat and the tares. He describes a man who has a wheat field. He sows the seed. There's a wheat crop. But at night, when men sleep or when men slept, Jesus says, an enemy, the devil as it were, comes in and sows weeds or tares that grow up alongside the wheat and the tares if you understand the plant that Jesus is referring to this is Matthew chapter 13 he's referring to a plant that looked very similar to wheat so you really couldn't tell the difference for sure with any degree of certainty until the harvest then you could see the wheat and distinguish it from the tares and by saying that this took place, that this enemy infiltrated the field and sowed these evil seeds, these sort of unconverted false converts and church members, to say that happened at night is not to say that the laborers, the church leaders that are pictured there, were asleep on the job because they wouldn't have been asleep, they, 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 they would be sleeping at night. They're not asleep on the job. They're sleeping at night. It's when men slept. 
It's not as though they're negligent. It is inescapable that even the most diligent and faithful and discerning church elders are going to accept people into the communicant membership of the church who profess the Gospel and seem to have a corresponding evidence in their life of being born again. The elders are going to receive them in. And no matter, no matter what, due to human weakness, just like we have to go to sleep at some point, we can't stand up guarding the field all day and all night, due to human frailty, Satan's going to come in, he's going to sow tares in the wheat field while the elders are just asleep, not in a sinful way, but in a human frailty kind of way. Paul deals with this in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 24. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. So the elders interview somebody for membership, communicant membership, and their unrepentant, wicked lifestyle is just jumping off the page. It's obvious, and so the elders have to take action accordingly. But those of some men follow later. So the church doesn't always see and really can never see the hearts of the people. They can see the fruit, but sometimes that fruit uh, can be deceiving at times. And those sins are not brought out till later. He goes on and says that the good works of some are clearly evident. Some people, it just seems so obvious that the Spirit is working in their lives and it seems like an easy communicant membership interview and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Now again, even where there seems to be obvious spiritual fruit, that can be false as well. So it's not an exact science. The elders are to do the best they can. But it is possible and, and certainly inescapable that there will be false converts that creep into the life of the church. If, if you're looking for the perfect church, as they say, don't join it, you'll ruin it. But also, if you're looking for the perfect church, Jesus says you're not going to find it. And churches that go around trying to root out uh, this, all the, the sort of subtle evidences that somebody is or is not converted and they're trying to pull out the tares, Jesus says don't do that lest you pull out the wheat. It has to be a clearly defined church discipline case, obvious fruit of iniquity, and yes, you, you, you can exercise discipline, but don't, don't try to, don't try to um, toy around with the subtleties as if you can judge the heart. So even if these church leaders were doing their best, false converts crept in to the life of the church. And as Paul says, they were temporarily concealed. Uh, Their sins weren't evident right away as we read. But I think it's fair to say from Jude's epistle that these sinners were eventually exposed. So there was a temporary deception, but eventually they were exposed. Thirdly, Jude and Peter illustrate this dangerous dynamic in the life of the church using metaphorical expressions. So they seek to highlight and illustrate this dangerous dynamic of ungodly persons sneaking into the church and eventually being exposed when their malignant, cancerous contagiousness just just begins to wreak havoc. And they each use, Jude and Peter, they each in addressing the same type of issue, they, ad- they use metaphorical expressions. Now the one that Jude uses 
in verse 12 is translated for us in our version, spots. I think King James has the same. You'll notice in some of the more modern translations, such as the ESV, they say hidden reefs. And you say, well, what's going on here? Well, the word for the, the word that Jude uses, spilos, spilos, looks a lot like the word for spot. It's not the word for spot. The word for spot is spilao. Different words, different word families. And so in 2 Peter 2 verse 13, in the parallel passage where they're talking about these ungodly people feasting with with the believers, um, Peter says spots, spilao, spots and blemishes. And Jude says spilos, which literally means a hidden reef. Rocks that at high tide are invisible to a seafaring vessel that eventually crashes and is shipwrecked on the rocks. Now the King James and New King James, I think, are probably imagining here that since these are parallel passages and there's only a slight difference in the spelling, that perhaps there's just an alternate spelling and they're both saying the same thing. And that's a reasonable theory. We're not here to criticize that. But if we just take it at face value, Jude is saying that these individuals are hidden reefs, dangerous, sharp, and jagged rocks that are under the surface of the water at high tide and are potential dangers for ships that might be gliding along on the water. So according to Jude... He emphasizes here the deception. They crept in. They're hidden. They're not seen right away. They're not noticeable at all times. And so they represent a potential cause for spiritual shipwreck. People making shipwreck of their faith when they stumble upon these stumbling blocks within the life of the church. And that can be the case. There can be people in the life of the church that are living an ungodly life, but it's not obvious at the surface. And somebody who's an adherent or a new member comes into the life of the church and just happens to see this person at low tide when the sharp, jagged rock is there. And they see that, that jagged rock and they, they are just immediately turned off to the Gospel of Jesus Christ and they make shipwreck of whatever profession of faith that they had because of that hidden reef. Romans 2 says that because of this inconsistency and hypocrisy, the Gentiles blaspheme God because the Jews say one thing and then at low tide something quite different is visible in their lives. Jesus says that if that's you and me, If that's you or if that's me that is that jagged rock, if we cause even the least of Christ's flock to to stumble or to perish, it would be better if a millstone was hung around our neck and we were cast into the depths of the sea. Strong language. but You can see the consequences are so monumental. The danger is so immense that the Bible pulls out all the stops in condemning and warning against these hidden reefs. But Peter refers to them as spots and blemishes as they feast at the Lord's table. 
spots and blemishes, 2 Peter 2.13. So according to Jude, the fact that they're communicant members, and then people see their hidden hypocrisy, and then they're just turned away from Christ, because how could this person feast at the Lord's table? In the same way, Peter says, no, it's a little different. They're like spots and blemishes at the Lord's table. Spots and blemishes. Think of leprosy. Think of leprosy. This ceremonially unclean disease which also uh, wreaked havoc upon the body. This invisible germ or virus or bacteria that takes root in a person and they're infected and it's not visible at first. That They're the hidden reef as it were. They're the hidden bacteria, the hidden virus. But eventually it breaks Fourth, and it is contagious, and like leaven, it leavens the whole lump. Its doctrine and practice eats like a cancer, Paul says elsewhere. It defiles, it is unclean, it is unsightly, and it diminishes the public reputation of the church of Jesus Christ. So it's hidden, it's a hidden reef, but eventually it's a spot, it's a blemish, it's a contagious leprosy that consumes away the beauty of the church of Jesus Christ. So they're illustrating the utterly dangerous dynamic of this phenomenon. Fourthly, these ungodly individuals expressed their contagious ungodliness in at least two ways. In at least two ways. You can see the first way We alluded to it earlier, verse 4. They crept in unnoticed, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that denial is not an overt public denial. It's not as though they're saying, we deny Jesus Christ. If that were the case, they would not be... uh, they wouldn't be effective. There would be no worm on the hook. Uh, their, Their contagious disease just wouldn't be able to find any entry point because the immune system of God's people would immediately pick up on it and fight it off. The fact is, they turned the grace of God into lewdness. They professed the grace of God. They professed the Lordship of Jesus Christ and of God the Father. They professed these things, but they denied them by their works. They said one thing, they lived another thing, and in another way. There was a practical denial of the Lordship of God in Jesus Christ. And my friends, that's the most dangerous kind of denial in the life of the church. In the life of the church, where generally, I think it's fair to say, if you're here this morning, it's likely that you have a positive outlook on the Lord Jesus Christ. That if somebody stood up in the middle of the service and denied that Jehovah is God and that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of all, you would reject that. Your immune system would immediately pick up on it and fight it off. There would just be a hook with no worm. But the fact is that a practical denial of the Lordship of God in Christ, especially one in which 
people are using the Lordship of God in Christ and the salvation and the grace of God that is offered in the Gospel, using these things to cloak lewdness and to excuse immorality, that is a great danger and always has been. If you read the New Testament, it's almost like not every other page, but you know what I'm saying. It's all over the place. Jesus addresses it. The apostles address it. It's a huge problem. It's a contagious form of ungodliness that is baptized into the life of the church, professing God, professing Christ, but denying Him by our works. Jesus even says, if you profess Lord, Lord, that's good, but there are many who profess the Lordship of Christ But on the last day, because they did not do the will of the Father, it will be shown that Christ never knew them. And they will depart into eternal destruction. That's the first way that these individuals spread their contagious ungodliness. The second way was their stubborn rejection of God-ordained human authority under Christ. So the Bible teaches that Christ is the King of kings. That assumes that Jesus is at the top. He's been given a name that is above every name. Obviously, our God is King of all the earth, but the second person of the Trinity who has assumed a human nature, He was humiliated, He he suffered, He died, He was buried, but then He rose again and has ascended to the highest heavens, seated at God's right hand. He is Lord of all, and He is the Lord of lords. So He is the Governor of all human authority. There are three God-ordained institutions. There's the family, the church, and the state. And Jesus has authority to command all three of these. He has authority to command what fathers and mothers do, wielding authority in the home. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, says Joshua, we will serve the Lord. And yet there is an authority that is under Christ in the family, in the church, and in the state. Jesus has appointed elders to govern His church. Under shepherds, under pastors of the great pastor, the great shepherd in heaven, He has appointed them. You'll notice in Matthew 9, 36 and following that the Lord Jesus Christ sees the people as sheep without a shepherd And then He teaches them, but immediately we're told that He speaks to the disciples that He's called, or that He's about to call. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers for the harvest. And then in chapter 10, immediately He calls them to be under shepherds. And the Holy Spirit, we're told in Acts 20 verse 28, has set apart, has ordained overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. And we could look at passages about honoring the King, obeying civil authority, and the the power of the sword in Romans chapter 13 that God has ordained for the civil magistrate who is accountable to Christ. And yet in each sphere, these authorities possess, uh, possess that prerogative to exercise authority under Christ. Now, What we find here in these verses, starting in verse 8, is a rejection of that. Likewise, also these dreamers, maybe they were claiming to have prophetic revelation in dreams. That could be, we could add that to the list as well. But they defile the flesh. So there's their lewdness. 
they reject authority and speak evil of dignitaries. I think that's speaking of civil magistrates, but let's just apply it across the board. Speaking evil of authority. Children, do you speak evil of your parents? God has given dignity and honor to your father and to your mother, and you have a duty to be respectful. These people are rejecting authority. They're speaking evil, as it were, of their parents, of their elders, of the civil magistrates that God had appointed over them. Not saying we can't point out the sins of the government, but we need to be very careful that we do it in a respectful way. These people, we're told, are mockers. Uh, verse 9 tells us that Michael the archangel didn't even revile the devil, but said, the Lord rebuke you. If he's respectful in a way, in a certain way, toward powers and principalities, the darkness of this world, uh, how much more should we be respectful of, uh, of President Biden and people like that, that maybe some of us we have problems with, but uh, if, if Michael is not just utterly mocking and reviling the devil, how much more should we respect ungodly civil magistrates in an appropriate way? Verse 10, but these speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally like brute beasts in these things they corrupt themselves. We're told in verse 11 that at the end of the verse they perished in the rebellion of Korah. So they were coveting Moses' and, uh, or Moses' authority, Aaron's authority as well. And so they reject that authority in the church and they perish. These people are perishing with those rebellious, disobedient church members. He goes on uh, in verse 12, as I mentioned, pastoring themselves, shepherding themselves, not submitting to counsel and encouragement and guidance from their fallible, sinful elders. There's no doubt that uh, the under-shepherds are not meant to replace the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, but uh, they're not receiving counsel. They're not listening. They're not responding to the preaching of God's Word as it is proclaimed faithfully. They're seeking to pastor themselves, shepherd themselves. Now I realize we're a priesthood of believers, but we need to be church members and we need to have under-shepherds as well as our great and chief shepherd. That's how He's ordained it. So you can see this pattern. Um, it goes on in verse 16. Grumblers, complainers. What's one of the main ways that we dishonor our parents, children? Grumbling. Complaining. Are we grumblers? Are we complainers? Are we always complaining? Well, my mom and dad, they don't know anything and they're telling me to do this or do that. Or uh, I see some smiles. We, the, the Spirit is at work here, children. Think about that. But we do that. We do that with the government. We do that with the church. We, we just have this tendency to grumble and to complain. When we complain against Moses, the Bible says we're really complaining against God. The same is true if we have this negative, fault-finding, judgmental spirit constantly complaining. Uh, walking according to their own lusts, they mouth great swelling words, flattering to gain advantage. You can see the picture that's painted here. One other thing I want to point out as well in this connection, verse 18, mockers. And verse 19, who cause divisions. So it's their attitude, their words, their actions at every level. 
they're being insubordinate to human authority under Christ. Now here's the argument or the excuse that as sinners, we're, we're tempted to make. We're tempted to say, well, I can pastor and shepherd myself. Uh, I don't need any civil authority. I don't need my parents. I have the Holy Spirit. Jude says, no, you don't. You, you actually don't. If, if you're refusing to keep the fifth commandment and submit in the Lord to God-ordained authorities under Christ, then you don't have the Spirit. If you're causing divisions, then verse 19 says you're not having the Spirit. So that's a rebuke to us. That's a rebuke to our flesh. Even if you are a Christian, at the time that you're doing this, are you walking in the Spirit? No, you're walking according to the lusts of your flesh, the text says. You're being sensual. You're being carnal. You're being like an untamable beast rather than submitting to the Lord by submitting to human authority as He has commanded it. Not having the Spirit. So these are the two ways. Practical denial of Christ's Lordship and a stubborn rejection of God-ordained human authority. Fifthly, despite their ungodly lifestyle, their irreverent lack of godly fear, they feasted at the Lord's table without fear. They feasted at the Lord's table taking it lightly. That's what that means. Irreverently, not seriously, not trembling at the presence of God and at the significance of the Gospel and of the covenant by which God has saved us through Christ. They took these things lightly. They took God lightly. They took Christ lightly. They took the Gospel lightly. They took the emblems of our Lord's death and resurrection lightly. Well, let's look at a couple aspects of this. They took sin lightly. They took sin lightly. Um, They feasted without fear. And we're told, verse verse 13, uh, they foamed up their own shame. They were like wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. You notice the, the, the phraseology here. The emphasis is on sin bringing judgment. Sin brings death. Uh, the, their late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead. Uh, they, they're wandering stars that are headed for eternal darkness. God will bring judgment upon them. They don't have the Spirit... In other words, they're headed for hell. These people didn't adequately take into account the consequences of their unrepentant sin. Verse 18, they're just mocking like those mockers Peter talks about in 2 Peter 3. Mocking concerning the judgment of the last day. My friend, do you take, when you come to the Lord's table, do you take sin seriously? Do you take the consequences of sin that Jesus endured for every believer, do you take that seriously? The infinite wrath of God, the nails in His hands and feet, the spitting in His face, the crown of thorns, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you take that consequence of sin seriously? And do you recognize that where there's unrepentant sin in the life of a Christian, you come to the Lord's table, if you don't judge yourself and examine yourself and repent that the Lord, for your own good, will bring grievous judgments and discipline into your life. 1 Corinthians 11.28 Do you take that seriously? 
Do you come to the Lord's table working out your salvation with fear and trembling at the reality and consequences of sin? Do you take the means of grace seriously? When you come to the Lord's table, you're renewing your vows of communicant membership. Do you take vow 5 seriously? That you promise to use the means of grace by which Christ strengthens your faith and conforms you to His image and likeness? Do you take it seriously when you commune that you're renewing these covenant vows before the Lord to diligently read the Bible, to engage in private prayer, to keep the Lord's day, to regularly attend the worship services morning and evening? Do you take seriously your duty to observe the appointed sacraments? Are you coming tonight? Are you going to observe the sacrament as you've communicate members as you've promised to do? And do you take seriously the duty to give to the Lord's work? We need to come to the Lord's table with fear and trembling, taking seriously the gravity, the weightiness of our duty to pursue the means of grace. How can we renew the new covenant as if God's going to write His law on our hearts by some kind of abracadabra magic trick rather than the means of grace He's promised to use? If we renew the covenant, it means we're renewing our commitment to use the ordinances of that same covenant. And if we make that promise in the name of the Lord and we don't take it seriously, we're breaking the third commandment. We're promising something. We're vowing something but we're taking His name in vain. So we need to take it seriously. Are we taking the church seriously? Are we taking the need to not shepherd ourselves, but to be shepherded by under-shepherds under the chief shepherd? Do we take that seriously? Do we take the cross of Christ seriously? As I said, the cross shows us God's love for sinners, but it also shows us God's hatred of sin. So when we come to this love feast, we need to recognize the love of God in Christ, as I'll mention in a second, but we need to recognize it also says this is what God thinks of sin, the eternal Son of God, miserably under the wrath of God on the cross. How can I commune and take up the emblems of His death and and His body and His blood without also having a renewal of my hatred of my own sin? If I cherish iniquity in my heart, the Lord not only will not hear my prayer, but He's going to discipline me at the Lord's table. I need to have fear and trembling. Godly fear. Are you taking your brethren seriously? Are you taking seriously the danger that you or I could be the hidden reef that defiles many as it were? The spot, the blemish, the reef. Just throw it in the blender and see the imagery. It's hidden, but it manifests itself and it defiles and it destroys. And it causes people to stumble. And it puts a millstone around my neck or yours. Do we take seriously the eternal destiny of our brethren and our impact, humanly speaking, on their lives? And do we take God's love seriously? After all, this is a feast of love. And I have about a minute and a half. I just want to point this out. If you feast with godly fear, then you can come to the Lord's table and, and you're, 
You're not feasting without fear in the sense that these people were, irreverently, unworthily, but you're feasting without fear of hell, without fear of sin, without fear of anything other than the God whom you love and fear as your heavenly Father. Are you taking God's love seriously? Because throughout Jude, he emphasizes love. Verse 2, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you, multiplied exponentially, filling you with the love of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 17, but you, beloved. Verse 20, but you, beloved. He's reminding them of that love. Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. My friends, this covenant of grace, this salvation, this gospel, this sacrament, this love is a serious thing. It's not like a no contract phone where you just kind of, you know, you're unfettered, no strings attached. These are cords of loving kindness. You are united in a marriage covenant with the Lord, with God Himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a deep personal relationship. It's not something to be taken lightly. It's not just a vague commitment and then I'll live as I please depending on convenience. This is serious. You look at our vows, you say, wow, that's serious. Yes, it is. Because it's a spiritual marriage to God Himself. Take His love seriously. It's a reciprocal, mutual love that you need to respond to. That you need to manifest and that You need to embrace. Let's pray. Gracious God, fill us with Your love. Enable us to keep ourselves in it. Mindful of it. All who love the Lord hate evil. Help us to hate evil and hate sin. Not because it brings evil consequences, but because it offends the God whom we love. We pray that You would apply this to us and enable us by faith to examine ourselves and to come well-prepared, worthy communicants at the Lord's table this evening. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.